I'm Joelle Castex. I'm a journalist, a writer, a speaker, and a survivor. And I'm a little bit of a troublemaker. I like to make people think, and I love to make them laugh. And, and what I've learned is that when I'm open and tell my story, people feel safe to share theirs. And it's the most intriguing part of my work. Why? The most extraordinary stories live in the most ordinary of places. And that's why I created the Unasked Podcast. Well, first I broke some rules. This is Kristen Jensen. She's a classical singer who runs a studio in Salt Lake City that shows people how their voice matters. It's more than just singing. It's an expression studio that guides women into healthy dialogue, being fully seen and heard, being connected with their bodies, and fully understanding the wisdom of emotion. And when you hear Kristen's full story, you'll get it. I first met her a couple of years ago at an event where I was speaking. We were supporting victims of sexual abuse in the LDS or Mormon church. And these were people who were abused as children in one-on-one -on -one closed door meetings with the local bishop. And there was something about Kristen and her now husband, Jeff, that just struck me. I knew there was a story there. And after talking to Kristen more in depth, I learned that, yes, there is. And I also saw that she was sharing a powerful story of two women. Two women born 150 years apart. And the power is what both of them were able to do with their voices. I'm a direct descendant of Brigham Young. So, like, it's not just part of my culture, it's literally part of my genetics. Kristen is not alone. There are approximately 30,000 descendants of Brigham Young alive today. The man had 55 wives. 16 of those wives bore him 57 children. In LDS at the time, plural marriage was a man's ticket to heaven, so to speak. Even if the woman he desired to have as a wife was already happily married to somebody else. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Before Kristen stumbled on the true story of her third great-grandmother, she learned firsthand that the way that the Mormon church punished women, women like her for supposed sexual sins, and I'm talking even like minor ones, those punishments were shaming, invasive, punitive, and finally led her to leave the church altogether and embark on her own spiritual journey. It was about finding a voice. So it's very painful to leave your community. These days, Kristen considers herself a post-Mormon. But my understanding is like post-Mormon is we still, we like we acknowledge that we were and we've moved past and expanded beyond and are in a like on a different direction and expanding and opening our hearts and our spiritual journey. Leaving the Mormon church happens in emotional stages for many people. If you go onto Reddit and you take a look at the ex-Mormon groups, you can see firsthand the pain and the rage and the betrayal and the isolation that can come with parting ways with the Mormon church. But let's get back to Kristen's story. Um, so Jeff and I met and we connected and he was in a relationship and it 
you know, obviously some kind of connection developed between us and it was very scary and we navigated that as best as we knew how at the time. But we made some mistakes along the way and I saw myself potentially facing some church discipline, even though we had boundaries in our relationship of how we expressed our connection. Um, but I was terrified because I'd seen other friends who had like gone further um, have to face discipline councils in the church and I was just really scared. So you may be wondering how the local leadership slash disciplinary council found out about what was or even wasn't going on between Kristen and her now husband Jeff. When I asked her, because I wondered too, she told me someone in her family had ratted her out tattled on her to church officials. If something comes up that's considered untoward, um, then the leadership is instructed to pressure the person telling them about it for the names of the other parties involved, which is, I think, highly unethical and extremely violating and abusive and inappropriate. And it completely discards confidentiality. It's a bit of a witch hunt in some ways. So I wanted to know what I was facing because that information was not readily available. And I went online and I found a copy of the church manual for leaders. At the time, it was um, not published to, to general membership. They have since revised that so that some of the leadership man old leadership manual is more public. But then they're handling the rest of the case, the rest of the um, policies like through a more private channel like emails now um, but back then there were two separate handbooks the membership had access to one the leadership had access to another and the membership was not privy to what was in the leadership handbook so I'm like what's going on what am I facing what could I potentially be facing and I went to the the part about the discipline and as I was reading it and this is after, like, I'd been on a spiritual journey. Um, I'd become much more nuanced in my understanding of principles of Mormonism. My understanding of Jesus, my experience with him, is that there was no, there's no judgment. There never was. Like, it's just extortion. It's extortion. So um, the discipline process is... Um, like you go in and you have to talk with your bishop if, if a, a like more serious sin, like a sexual sin, or an um, has been made, or an apostate, like if you're in apostasy and have publicly been criticizing the church and its leaders, um, which is often found out by a secret committee called the Strengthening the Members Committee. It's kind of like the church's own version of the Gestapo. Like they're they're tracking people's social media posts and um, like making files on them. And if there's, you know, if they cross certain boundaries, they'll send the whole file to the local leadership and have them and tell them to call the person in. Especially if it, like what has been said is an embarrassment to the church. If it's more of a private matter, like personal relationship and violating of sexual boundaries, um, basically what you have to do is you have to recount all of your sexual sins in great detail, as much detail as they will ask you about. Um, you have to express like where you are, 
um, in the repentance process, um, what your behavior has been since you started the repentance process. Um, I knew one person who had to recount all of their sexual sins that were not related to the particular issue at hand, but like the entire history of their life. But it involved like public shaming. Like um, if somebody were judged to be unworthy and put on a probationary process, like in a pro on probation, they could not publicly take the sacrament or communion. Um, they could not publicly pray. They could not give comments in class. Um, they could not hold callings, which are voluntary positions to help the church um, congregation function in like various respects. So they're basically outcast, but still allowed to go. So there's that, you know, which I think is really violating and shaming and creates like, I've done something bad. I am bad. These councils and being publicly shamed and punished or called an apostate or even being, heaven forbid, excommunicated in the LDS church is no joke. I mean, I grew up Catholic. We're professionals at messing up, leaving the church for a while, going to confession, and then, you know, everything's rosy. And that's whether you lifted $5 out of your sister's purse, but that wasn't me, I swear. Whether you criticized the Pope or whether you're a priest who molests kids. LDS is super different. There's little room for error or dissent. Being called in front of a council can destroy marriages, cause people to lose their jobs or future job opportunities if they are employed by another LDS. Family members can be encouraged to not engage with the person who is under review. And the person being punished loses access to their entire community and support system. It's like God, the church, and your family all turn their backs on you. Oddly enough, just like in the Catholic Church, powerful LDS members who molest kids also seem to get a free pass. I, it was just super clear to me that this um, system was set up to create shame and guilt. It was abusive. It was inappropriate. There were no ethical standards that were being abided by as far as confidentiality. Um, like, I was horrified and I realized to myself, oh my gosh, they are taking his name in vain. How fucking dare they? Then I started, um, you know, investigating other things like historical stuff. Um, and everything that I uncovered and discovered simply confirmed my um, understanding of the church as an institution out of integrity with its own values, out of integrity with the being whom they profess to, to follow. And um, it was just, there's a lot of corruption and a lot of sweeping things under the rug. I found out about, um, the like the non-disclosure agreements that they make with victims of sexual abuse to pay them off very little and then they can't talk about it ever so much more about the image of the institution than it ever is about the integrity of the institution and that is the foundational flaw and problem of this of this religion so basically if you're engaged in a more serious sin they can accelerate it from just meeting with your local bishop 
And they will put you in front of, for women now, it's just in front of a panel of three men who are locally leading the ward. For men, they accelerate it to this panel at the stake level where there are like 15 men. And they will have a trial. And they're supposed to be some of those men that represent the the sinner, (laughs) who is the member who is, you know, at the court. And I think they've labeled it something different now. I think they call it membership council. Um, because your membership is potentially in jeopardy. And so the person is brought to this thing and like the evidence is brought against them. And then they're supposed to be members who are advocating for them. But I've never heard of any instance where they were really advocated for. And it seems, at least in high-profile cases, that like, the decision has already been made. And some people go through that and it helps them because it helps them reform their behavior and they kind of need that guilt and shame to help them transform their behavior. For other people, it's incredibly damaging. And there's not taken into account needs of the people and sensitivities and what's healthy for each individual. I think some leadership are more emotionally intelligent and more spiritually wise and connected and in tune. And they're able to kind of modify and mitigate some of these more harsh, these harsher ways of dealing with people that are outlined in the handbook. But it's really Russian roulette. You never really know what you're gonna get with each leader. And they have discernment and kind of like it's their little realm that they can dole out punishment or mercy how they please. I was so enraged at what I saw because I knew it was not right. I knew it was wrong and it was inappropriate. It was causing harm because I had seen it cause harm to some other friends of mine who were willing to submit to it. I was not willing to submit to that. And I didn't think that what had transpired would necessarily merit that type of level of discipline but I just wanted to know like what could I be facing and that was the breaking of my shelf. Within Mormonism um, there are things about our history, there are things about how things happen that often cause people to question and um, I don't think we're encouraged by top leaders that that they are encouraged by top leadership to put things on a shelf, but it's a pretty common cultural norm to talk about, well, I've got this shelf and I just don't understand this aspect of the doctrine. I don't understand that. I don't necessarily agree with this, but I'm going to put it on the shelf. I'm going to carry on with my, with my covenants, with the commitments that you make in the temple or at baptism. Um, and I'm going to carry on. I'm going to be faithful. And I'm going to put these things that don't fit, that are causing me cognitive dissonance away in the closet, up on the shelf or I maybe look at them later when I have a different perspective, or maybe after I die, God and Jesus will make sense of them for me. And for a lot of people, there are so many things that get put on their shelf and eventually they break in this lifetime. And then they have to look at it. And for most people, it drives them into some kind of a faith crisis. And some become more nuanced and figure out a way to make it work for them. And some end up departing and a lot of people who become nuanced eventually depart as well. It's really 
really difficult to make to go through faith crisis. It's really difficult to go through a faith transition. And as much safety as can be created as possible, as far as what you disclose to other people, the people that are safe to talk to, um, the people that are safe to let you be seen at this time, you know, like I feel there's just a lot of wisdom in crafting strong boundaries. It's absolutely terrifying because it feels like you're going to die. It feels like you're going to be cut out and ostracized and nobody will love you. And you're going to lose the people that you have grown to love and connected with. You're going to lose your family. You might lose your spouse. You might lose your children. You might lose your parents. In some ways, I did. And it was really hard. And it, there's a grief process around that because you know that they're being taught lies about why people actually leave. And it's not right. It's not ethical. It's not an integrity. It's just really wrong. There's so many good people who are part of Mormonism. So many good, principled, loving, integrous people, of many of whom I know and related to and have friends with. But there are deep problems that a lot of people like dismiss because it's billed as anti-Mormonism or it comes across that way. And the cognitive dissonance is just too great. And there's too high of a cost to really look at it, honestly. The, they're fed a line about why people leave. And most people, I think there are more younger people that are open to like understanding why, but like the older generation, like my parents' generation, my peers, a lot of a lot of us were very deeply programmed to only look at things a certain way and there's no room to entertain other possibilities that maybe that's not actually what people leave. Maybe there are legitimate reasons. And within Mormons, like, well, <laughs> you have the very uh kind of gross aspect of the history that a lot of polygamy um, yeah. that was practiced was between men in their 40s and 50s marrying teenagers, sometimes young teenagers, which was not culturally appropriate in the United States at that time. It was very much a, a vagrancy of the cultural norms and ethical moral norms of the time. And like they pretty much shoved out the young boys and the teenagers and the young men with whom these young girls and teenagers and young women were connecting with and wanted to be, you know, like the peer to peer romantic relationships were not possible for a lot of these women. They were married off to older men. And I don't know how much consent they had with that. So in some respects, it was a bit of human sex trafficking and pedophilia going on. And that culture still exists in the Mormon church. That's why we have such a huge problem with it. That's why so many, uh, that's why sex abuse is very prevalent here. And it's very much hidden and very much not discussed. And I think it's, there are issues with the sexuality. Like it's a very sex obsessed religious institution. My third great grandmother actually was like legally married to a different man. And then she was sealed as a plural wife to Joseph Smith and then was approached by Brigham once Joseph was killed. And she wrote in her diary that uh, it was one of the most difficult nights of her life, life because Brigham came to visit with her and her husband. And I think something along the lines of, well, you're my property. I'm deciding to take you into my fold because you're jo you were Joseph's property and wife and it's like the old testament type of women or property ethic um and 
Uh, he sent her husband off on a mission, and by the time he got back, she had moved in with Brigham and his harem, and they were already making their way across um, Lake, I think they were in far west at the time. Right, there was a massive power differential there. And with Joseph, he coerced her into marrying, into becoming sealed to him as a plural wife. Um, the first time he approached her about it, she said no, and she was engaged to the man that she married. And this is Zaina Diantha Huntington Young. Zaina Diantha Huntington Jacobs Smith Young is her full name. <laughs> Not legally, but like with yeah. all the husbands that she had. Um, so she married um, Henry Jacobs against, and Joseph Smith was supposed to be the officiant at their wedding. He didn't show up because he said, well, the Lord has told you that you were mine, so I just can't come because I can't bear it. In the meantime, he'd already sealed himself to many other women and girls and whatever. Um, that's a big mess there. Um, and then she lived with Henry Jacobs and she was pregnant with him when Joseph had her brother room her and convince her to become sealed to him. And he used the line of the angel of the flaming sword and you have so much time to make this decision. And you know, this your, your family's salvation depends on it kind of thing. Like it was high pressure, high stakes situation that he put her in. And which I think is super unethical and very inappropriate and spiritually and sexually abusive. Um, I'm just gonna call that out. And that was his pattern. And you know, that's kind of the pattern of a sexual predator. Um, so yeah, I just called the man who founded my church a sexual, the church that I belong to still technically a sexual predator. And holy cow, my grandma did that. That was never, I was not told about that. I was told that she was a plural wife of Joseph Smith and that she joined with Brigham Young after he died. I was never told she was legally married to another man that she supposedly apparently loved and had to close her heart off to marry Brigham, like to be with Brigham. Um, <laughs> at the time he was preaching actively that um, if a woman wanted to be with a man of a higher priesthood standing, she could leave the man she was legally married to because the celestial marriage was a higher order and trumped any legal marriage, which is a bit different now the church honors legal marriage and they're quite insistent on people in sexual relationships being legally married. But at the time it was not that <laughs> it was like, well, if you want to like, you know, have a higher social station and have a higher chance of getting into heaven and be more elevated in the afterlife is how I understand it. Um, then you can leave your husband and, come and, and join with a man of higher priesthood authority. And she did. And she would, she insisted that she was very well treated by him. And as opposed to other wives that he had, that he literally neglected and would not support financially, um, that he sent off to the farm, which is now across the street from the Holy Zoo. Um, he, he treated her very well, built her a really beautiful home on third South in like in state street area. And she was one of his more honored favored wives. In case you missed the name of Kristen's third great-grandmother, it was Zena Diantha Huntington Jacobs Smith Young. She was born in 1821, and her parents were early followers of Joseph Smith and his new Mormon faith. By the time she was handed over to Brigham Young at the age of 25, and this is in her second non-consensual plural marriage, Zena knew she didn't have options. She was lucky being a favored wife, and she realized that if she wanted to stay that way, she had to toe the line. 
that Zena found a voice. She was a well-known spiritual healer back when that was still accepted within the boundaries of the church. She was a school teacher. She was trained in midwifery and nursing. She helped to found Deseret Hospital. She organized a nursing school. She was a champion for women's suffrage and was the president of the Relief Society, and that's the largest women's organization in the Mormon church. And you look back, she helped women find education, votes, vocations, healthcare, and employment. This is revolutionary stuff. So no one will probably ever know how she really felt about being strapped into two plural marriages. But we do know that she didn't let those marriages completely silence her. She found a voice, and she found power the way she knew how. Kristen's journey, 150 years later, is in many ways following in those footsteps, but blazing a new path, one away from the constraints of the LDS Church. I was living in Arizona, like in 2000, I think it was about 2008. Um, I had an experience where I said no to a calling, like I was done with it. And I stopped going to a couple of the Sunday meetings. And I think I would probably say that was the seed of the germination of the transition period. Um, and then I moved to New York City a couple years after that. And it was um, just really eye-opening. I was still very faithful, like I still, went to the temple, I was still active and participating in the church, but I saw life in a very different way, being exposed to lots of different people. I was in the arts, I went to acting school. That um, really helped me open up my perspective and my understanding of people and become a lot less judgmental. I was actually shocked at how judgmental I had been conditioned to be and wasn't okay with that when I saw it. so I'd say, and, and then I moved to Utah <laughs> and went to like a mid-singles congregation and it was so freaking depressing. And like, I was not being spiritually nourished and stimulated socially at all in that environment. It, like, it felt like people were in a state of continuous adolescence. It took me, I'd say about four years before I was I publicly said something on Facebook, like, hey, I've transitioned. Although it was obvious by pictures that I posted because you know, I had the worn shoulders showing. <laughs> I had taken what? off the, the temple oh. garment. Yeah. <laughs> and was wearing sleeveless clothes. So like, it was, it's a cue that something had changed. And I started posting about the divine feminine, which is um, like related to my spiritual path. And you know, I let people know indirectly, but the first time that I actually said something explicitly was about four years down the road. Once Kristen found her voice, she realized that she could help other women leave in the LDS church. And she could do it by expanding on her experience in music and the performing arts. And um, I learned how to surf in acting school. I learned how to actively purposefully get myself into a state of grief or rage or disgust and like all of these emotions I used to judge and would suppress within myself. And I've learned it is safe to feel and I've learned that it is safe 
to have emotional expression and emotional life and reality. And I've learned not to judge my emotions, but to look for the messages inside of them. And I deeply care that women learn what their bodies are trying to communicate to them, what their emotional selves are trying to communicate to them, and that they learn the truths that are deep inside of them that are trying to come up for attention, to be seen and heard. Um, I deeply care that women have the courage and the strength to make difficult decisions, that they know how to set boundaries. They know how to take care of themselves. But like, you know, my focus right now is, is on the feminine because the feminine has been so suppressed and so oppressed and so shut down in so many ways. And we've got thousands of years of history of this happening. And Mormonism is its particular specific brand of that. And I know what it is. I know the mystical injury that it can create. I know the psychological and emotional injuries that being deeply conditioned in a patriarchal religious system can create. Um, a high demand patriarchal religious system can create. And I deeply care about women really stepping into their sovereignty. Like I, I um, co-facilitate a, a goddess community here in Salt Lake. And usually over the summers, we hold a red tent where we celebrate um, a young girl who has hit her puberty and her menses cycle from going from the girl archetype into the maiden stage of her life. And then there's like the stage into the mother and then there's stage into the queen and then the stage into the wise woman or crone. So like honoring the passages of our life and the men have similar points of passages and people who identify as non-binary or trans um, or anything along that spectrum, you know, like humans go through passages of life, stages of development. And part of the work of the priestess is to help shepherd people through those passages. And like if a person is wanting to emerge and develop their capacity as a singer, we go there and we do voice instruction. Um, we also do coaching, like expression coaching along with that as a way to break through emotional um, and psychological barriers that come up. Because when you're singing and activating your physical voice in that way, in that creative expression, it can be very vulnerable. It can be, it can really bring a lot of shit up. And of like, it's not safe to be heard. It's not safe to be seen, especially like you're talking about going into some kind of a performance situation, which I encourage a lot of my students to do. And then there are people who are really struggling with their expression and really needing to show up better in conflict. And so we do coaching with that and I bring in the tools that I know. We use some vocal skills with that. Then there are women who, um, and people who want to like open up some of their spiritual capacities. And so I, I bring in some tools with that. Like I'm, I'm right now I'm offering ritual ceremonies and archetypal ceremonies and things along those lines where we design specifically something that will help them deep, more deeply embody who they want to become or release something that they're really ready to get rid of. And a lot of it does voice, involve voice and expression. So it's all like interrelated at like different angles. I deeply care that women have a chance to express themselves in a way that is honoring to them, that a way for their, in, their integrity and authenticity. I deeply, deeply care that women are in touch with their bodies, that they're in touch with their desires, with what they want. I deeply care that women have got the words and the skills and the capacities to show up in conflict and confrontation, which is something very difficult for those women brought up in my culture. 
I really deeply care that women learn that their spiritual path is sacred and sovereign to themselves. I deeply care that women are able to express who they are, whether it's how they dress, how they interact with people, how they speak, how they express themselves in the world with their creative expression, whether they're singing or it's a different type of um, expression. I deeply care that women trust and know themselves and know that they are sacred and holy. I think that um, a lot of us who end up leaving, uh, there's a lot of anger in the grief phase and there's a lot of stuff we throw back at active members um, that is very toxic. And there's a lot of stuff that active members will throw at members who are leaving and who have left, a lot of judgment that is also very toxic. There's a lot of toxicity going back and forth. There's not a lot of owning our own shit. Take the time and space you need to be safe for yourself. Like create the safety that you need to process through and wrestle through very difficult things. Um, realize that there is a lot of conditioning that you have been brought up with or you know had for a number of years. I would say develop your intuition, trust yourself, trust your gut, trust your body. A lot, I feel that a lot of women who grow up in this church, institution, and culture um, have like learned to disconnect themselves from their bodies and sometimes to their intuition um, because they're seeking uh, confirmation for their choices from outside of themselves through like the spirit, which can be a very beautiful thing. But there's also like an innately installed mechanism called your intuition and your body wisdom that is also calibrated to lead you through life and to help you be in integrity with yourself and help you make decisions that are wise and in your highest good and in the, in alignment with divine and with your soul's purpose the unasked podcast is written and produced by me joel castex so if you like what you're hearing, give us, and it's really just me, a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and anywhere you stream quality entertainment. Plus, tell your friends and tell everyone who's a podcast junkie. If you want to learn more about our guests, you can visit our website at unaskedpod.com. And that's also where you can find links to all of our socials and our Patreon page. And if you know of a story that needs to be told, you know, an extraordinary story in a very unlikely place, you can contact me there. Thanks, and until next time.